Welcome to the Not A Mommy Yet podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Fay. I started the Not A Mommy Yet blog and this podcast because I've always known I want to be a parent one day, and you might be listening because you feel the same. You may have also heard people with kids say things like, I wish I had known this before I had kids, or I wish I had done that. Hearing those comments made me think about the parts of my life I want to spend more time focusing on before I have kids in ways that will benefit me as a parent. So I started a list of people who can teach me about health, money, relationships, psychology, and more, and started interviewing them, and this podcast was born. Whether you plan to have kids or not, I think you'll find something interesting in this podcast for you. I hope you enjoy, subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Today on the podcast, I am speaking with Dr. Kristen Pocker. She is originally born and raised in Hawaii and became fascinated with exploring how a person's immediate environment and culturally shaped theories about race impact basic social perception, social interactions, and stereotyping in childhood and throughout development. She loves to discover new ideas through her novel research studies and applying those insights toward creating interventions to mitigate stereotyping, interpersonal friction, or persistently biased social perception. Her research examines how motivations, social context, and individuals' lay theories impact social perception and their resultant consequences for intergroup relations. Spanning both social and developmental psychology, her research has been featured in journals including Science, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and Developmental Psychology. She was also my psychology professor at the University of San Francisco, and I actually assisted her on some of her research at the time, which we touched on in our conversation. In this episode, we discuss the danger of colorblindness, an interesting preschool activity that would definitely test parents during an important teaching moment, a few of Dr. Pocker's recent studies, and the interesting findings that teach us more about the way children think and perceive, and some moments she has had as a mom talking to her son about race and appearance. Before we begin, it would mean a lot to me if you would take a few moments to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's a free and easy way to support, and it means the world to me. Now on to this week's episode of Not A Mommy Yet. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here today. It's so nice to see you again. It's been, I was in your psych class in 2009, so <laughs> a long time. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, but I tell people all the time to this day about assisting you in your research um, about you know, and going to elementary schools with you and talking to elementary school age children. So I'm excited to kind of hear how that study evolved after I worked with you. And um, yeah, I just immediately thought of you. I've, I've spoken to the founders of Embrace Race, which were was an incredible conversation and the work that they're doing is amazing. But you're taking it to like another level scientifically, you know, like you have research and data and it just gets really into the nitty gritty. And so I am excited to talk to you today about all the different things. So just to kind of start off and so you can introduce yourself to people listening who don't know you, um, how did you get into this work, kind of your background and and what you're currently doing today? Great. So um, I'm excited that you invited me to to speak with you today. Uh, And um, so I'm a professor in psychology at the University of Hawaii Manoa. Um, I actually was born and raised in Hawaii, 
and so that is some of the motivation behind the work that I that I do now. Um, I think having grown up here is a unique experience in a lot of ways. Um, it's a relatively diverse population, but diverse in very specific ways, right? So we're missing some things that you have in other areas of the United States in terms of representation of different groups. Um, so we have, you know, very particular type of representation here. Um, but that said, um, I think one interesting thing is there's a very large multiracial population in Hawaii. Uh, and so I, myself growing up, um, identifying as both Japanese and white, uh, you know, this was a very comfortable place for me to grow up. Uh, in part, both of those groups are in the relative majority here, but also because there's like lots and lots of people who came from multiple backgrounds. So that kind of set the stage for what I ultimately became interested in, which was, uh, you know, trying to understand and unpack the development of stereotypes and prejudice across, um, you know, early childhood. Um, and what kind of opened my eyes to being interested in that was having grown up here and then gone to college. Um, and so I went to college in the Northeast um, at Dartmouth, which was a very different environment for me. Uh, and for the first time, I really saw a lot of uh, segregation in terms of friendship groups, for example, that became very apparent uh, and just kind of trying to figure out where I fit in in that environment. Um, and that got me really interested in this idea of how our environment and where we grow up and what we're exposed to in our immediate social environment um, really uh, shapes the way we think about race and um how you know, we might then uh, interact based on it, um, et cetera. So kind of seeing those stark differences and also just conversations with other people and the types of questions that they asked, I was like, oh, these are new ideas that I haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really got me interested in, well, okay, how does this vary then based on where you grow up and the, the things you're exposed to in your childhood? That was my long-winded answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing. I can I can definitely see how, first of all, just Hawaii to Dartmouth, like <laughs> in general, <laughs> geographically too, and the way it is there. But um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense how that could expose you to just new stuff and and curiosities that that kind of spark the interest in this this area of study. So when you started studying this, you were already a psychologist and then you became a researcher or like, how did it work once you wanted, decided to get into this field? Yeah. So I think ultimately I came about it from a, a somewhat roundabout, but direct path. I guess those are directly in mm-hmm. <laughs> opposition to each other, but um, I knew I wanted to do developmental psychology and I knew I was interested also in social psychology Uh, and there weren't at least at the time a lot of researchers who were kind of working in the intersection of those two things Um, there were some and there were some really amazing people doing that type of work but um, there just there wasn't as many Um, and I knew I wanted to do both, but I didn't, I hadn't quite found, like, I can look at stereotyping and prejudice in children. I, I knew I could do stereotyping and prejudice from a social psychological perspective. Um, and I had done quite a bit of um, work working with children um, and infants, in fact, in looking at things like uh, language development, um, perceptual development. But I really didn't know that you could do those two things together. Um, So, you know, kind of my coursework in college exposed me to 
the stereotyping and prejudice work, which got me really excited. Um, but I knew I wanted to do it with kids. And mm-hmm. so I did a whole bunch of different um, research internships uh, during my time in college uh, where I got involved in research, but it was all research that was, uh, you know, very um, cognitive development research. So looking at language development, looking at perceptual development. Um, and I still didn't really see the intersection between the two. Um, and actually the one thing that uh, got me kind of hooked on this idea of doing research in this area was I saw a research talk that was given at NYU where I was working at the time. Um, and this was after college, I started working in a research lab at NYU. Uh, and there was a research talk given by Rebecca Bigler, who's done a lot of really pioneering work in this area. Uh, and she gave a talk all about uh, looking at uh, uh, minimal groups in, in children or you know, kind of, if you put children into groups, and then you label those groups, even if they initially have no meeting, what are the factors that happen in terms of how they interact with each other and the behaviors they exhibit? And so she was doing all this really cool work. And I saw the talk and was like, oh, I can do a combination of, of <laughs> you know, the looking at this development of prejudice and stereotyping, but in kids and from, but, you know, also integrating some of the social psychological perspective. Uh, so that talk really got me interested in this area in particular. And then that's when I went to decided to go to grad school to pursue specifically doing research um, in this area. Nice. That's amazing. Yeah. It's always nice to have that like <laughs> moment. I love like, it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd love to get into some of, you have so much incredible research and anyone listening can go into like Google scholar and see all of her publications, but um Talking about, like, obviously, all of your research is about kids mainly, but the eye tracking study in infants. So going from, like, infants to the oldest children that you've studied, what has been, like, the most interesting to you to discover from, like, so, so new, like a baby newborn infant to kids as they get older. Like for me with the elementary school, when I was assisting you, it was, it was so cool to see how the younger kids were just so much more focused on like when you ask them, like, what color are you or anything like that, they were more concerned about like the outfit they were wearing or things like that. Whereas then you saw as they got older, they were like much more aware of the questions you were asking them and what they really meant. And so I would just love to hear from you the age range, like the, your most interesting findings and kind of what's been most surprising or interesting in general. I think actually some of what's been most surprising is the extent to which children understand some of these issues more so than we think they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, uh, you know, as you spoke to, there's developmental change, right? So like the younger kids, when you ask them certain questions, they they don't think about race in the same ways. They see it as very, this literal um, kind of surface feature that they don't understand um, really has implications uh, in terms of behavior and treatment and um, possible discrimination. Uh, But I think even with some of the older kids that we've worked with, you know, the 10, eight, nine, 10 year old children, we did a study and I can't remember if you were involved in this one or not, but we, uh, as part of the study, we were asking them what their definition of discrimination was. Um, and I was actually very surprised that a large proportion of the children could give a very concrete and 
and accurate <laughs> description of discrimination. Um, right. And to me, it was surprising because I feel like I've asked those same questions to college students before. And, um, you know, I felt like some of these, you know, 10, 9, 10 year olds could give as good of a definition. Um, and some of it had to do with um, seeing or, you know, if I had to go with, I don't think we have data that looks directly at this, but um, just based kind of, you know, descriptively that a lot of it had to do with the children's own experiences. So if they had experience with discrimination, they could give a more concrete example themselves, right? So based on their own social identity and, and their experience with discrimination. Um, but some of it also had to do with um, the school and the types of things that the school was implementing. So I, I know one particular school that we worked in uh, had a social justice class. And in the social justice class, they watched um, videos, uh, I think it's the like the what would you do videos from ABC, I think it's ABC, where, you know, they show kind of examples of things that happen and oh, then yes, scenarios. Yes. And you basically see how, like you see kind of um, anecdotal data of what happens, you know, in one case versus another case. And so they watched several of those that basically demonstrated discrimination happening in the real world now. Um, and that gave the kids a vocabulary and, and examples that they could use um, that helped them understand this as a concept. Um, so for me, that was really interesting to see that how, you know, a school decides to discuss and socialize based on this um, can impact how the kids are understanding it. Um, and, and, and we do know from research as well that that, that happens in terms of parental socialization as well. Like the, the ways that, that, that parents choose to talk to these things, um, talk about these things with their kids and then children's understanding of it. So when you involve the schools in these studies and then you get your, you collect your findings and do the teachers at the school or the schools themselves ever get to take what you found and then put it put what they, what you've learned maybe to help like adjust things or teach the teachers how to adjust their behaviors maybe, or give, they tell, let them know everything's great. Like you're doing a great job. Like how do you, do you kind of work with the school after the study as well to kind to kind of put things into motion in that way? Yeah. So it really depends on the school and what their interests and their wants are. So we try to work with the school as a partner. Uh, and so when we're getting involved with them, we ask them from the beginning, you know, what is most useful for you? How can we help? Um, so some schools, the way that they want uh, feedback is to give a presentation to parents, for example. So we've okay. done that at some schools where they say, take the findings either from the school or from other research you have and give a presentation to parents about um, what the research says and how that can help them in terms of, of navigating these issues with their kids. Uh, so we've done that. Uh, some schools, it uh, they yeah, they would like a presentation for the teachers. And so we'll go in and give a presentation on here, the findings from this particular um, set of studies uh, and what you can take away from that and what you might choose to do or change. Um, and then we have also, we worked in partnership with the um, San Francisco Unified School District um, and went back and gave presentations actually to the, the broader district, um, which was like administrative staff and, and other people who were interested in the findings. Um, we try not to give kind of like, you should do this type, unless they, they would like it. Um, yeah. Oftentimes it's more they want the information and then they want to figure out how best to implement it within their schools because they typically know best about um, what are their weaknesses and strengths? Uh, but 
we do try to work with the schools uh, to give back in terms of here's what we have learned from the research and what can you take away from it? Yeah, because I, yeah, I would think it is a huge benefit to them. They don't, not every school gets to have, you know, kind of this research going on about what's actually happening at their own school. You know, they get, you know, they get kind of assessments or feedback here and there, but nothing like this controlled where you're able to kind of really give them like solid information about what's going on. Um, so what to you has been kind of the most exciting finding in your work that you really want people to know and, and yeah, just feel has been like the most impactful discovery? I think right now it is something pretty new, but I guess not that new because I think we were starting to collect this data when you were working with me. It just takes science takes time. Yeah. Um, but um, right now we have a set of findings that we're super excited about that's not yet published, um, but I think is close, mm-hmm. uh, where we looked at children's theories about prejudice. And so what we mean by that is, do they think about prejudice as something that's fixed? That, you know, you're a prejudiced person, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, it's inside of you. Or do they think about prejudice as something that's malleable, something that they can change, they can work on, um, you know, that it will, you know, even if they find out maybe they're prejudiced in some way right now, but that means that it's not going to be there forever necessarily. They could change. Uh, and so we find that children's beliefs whether they think about prejudice as fixed or malleable is related to things like the diversity in their friendships and their um, anxiety that they report when interacting with someone who's a different, uh, who belongs to a different racial group than them. Um, And what's even more interesting is that also is uh, related to their behavior in actual interactions. So we put them in, um, pairings were, and this was kind of very (laughs) difficult. It took a lot of work in terms of arranging this, but we paired um, children at one school with children at another school. So just like basically someone they'd never met before. um, And they were either paired with someone who belonged to their same group, racial group, or someone who belonged to a different racial group. Um, In addition to that, we manipulated the extent to which they thought about prejudice as something that was malleable or not. Um, so they read a storybook that that kind of espoused a message that prejudices can change in all these ways, or they read a storybook that talked about how prejudice is something that's fixed and we can't change it. Um, and then they, um, after that, um, interacted with someone they didn't know over video chat. So it was it was like novel at the time in terms of like we're doing video chat with, with kids, and now it seems like commonplace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what was super interesting was that if they were in the group that they read this prejudices malleable story, uh, they actually had better interracial interactions um, that were more on par with their same race interactions. And they wanted to have like they were more interested in, in pursuing future interactions with that same person um, in the future. So it like, not only did they have like a better interaction in the moment, but it also influenced the extent to which they wanted to interact with that person in the future. And this was um, particularly the case for interracial interactions and not same race interactions. Um, So it's kind of promising in respect to thinking about ways we can intervene to encourage 
uh, children to approach topics of race, which they might be, you know, not sure about, um, and in interactions in general, and maybe start to form more interracial friendships. Um, and I think the other interesting part about it too is that it also it it relates to how we think about teaching kids about these topics, right? right. So when we think about okay, I'm going to teach kids about prejudice, or I'm going to teach kids not to be prejudiced. The way that we typically talk about it and think about it is like, it's in the person, that person's racist, and thus you don't want to be racist. Um, And sometimes we convey these messages about it being something that's in the person that can't change, even unintentionally. Um, So thinking about when we're doing talking to kids about these issues or purposefully doing discussions around these issues, really instilling, you know, yes, these are things we need to work on, but they can change. Mm. Um, That there's something we can do to make it better. Um, And that seems to really uh, be impactful in terms of changing um, how children approach the the situation. So it becomes less about I might be perceived in a negative way and worried about being, you know, called out as being prejudiced and more about, and we found that they were more interested in learning um, in the situation. So it kind of changes the focus in which they approach the same situation. So that brings up a lot for me, because I think, you know, when you think about becoming a parent and there's, you know, there's so much that I think that like people need to work on, including myself before we have kids, because if a child came up to me right now and asked me to talk to them about race and racism and prejudice, I would not be prepared. I would not even know where to begin to be completely honest. So like, I know that this is like a muscle that needs to be flexed and practiced. And it feels weird to practice talking to kids about something when you don't have to do it. But then when you do, you know, like when you have a baby, okay, you're not talking about it with your like baby, but as your kid gets older, there's going to be like an appropriate age and stage for every conversation as they get older. And I spoke to this one um, person on my podcast who helps train teachers and, and since the pandemic now trains parents on how to regulate, like help with children's emotions. He, He helps with a wide range of of, of things for them. But I asked him this question because he wrote this really great um, article about um, protesting. And he was like, you know, the conversation really just has to start with talking about race. It doesn't have to start with talking about racism like this way. And that's what I think Embrace Race is doing, too. It's, you know, teaching kids about race from a young age kind of changes that. So then later, yes, they should learn about it. It exists in this world. They need to know about it. But they aren't coming at it from like like needing to backtrack, I guess I should say, I don't know something. So, so I guess what I'm, I'm trying to get at is, you know, how, what would you recommend to people who are either parents already or thinking about becoming parents? Like how, how do we start practicing these conversations if we aren't already having them regularly? Yeah, I think thinking about practice and how you might respond is really important Um, because oftentimes kids will come up with questions or will make just a comment and in the moment you don't know how to respond (laughs) Um, and I think what's interesting to me is the only way to get it to get better at that is practice like you said and so I can give a personal example about that and then I can go back to like what can we do Um, but a personal example for me that comes up is 
Uh, so, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of we need to talk about these issues with our kids early. We need to talk about race earlier. We can't avoid the topic. Um, and so, you know, I keep, you know, thinking about opportunities to have these conversations. But in the moment, I can think of a time where I essentially responded in a, what would could map on to a colorblind view in some ways. Um, so it's slightly different, but basically I have a friend who was visiting us. Um, and before she came to visit us, I talked to my son to let him know, like, you know, we have auntie who's coming to visit us. And just so you know, auntie's missing some fingers on her hand. Um, and I just want you to be comfortable with that and not, you know, there's nothing, auntie is totally fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Auntie gets by her day every day and is awesome. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just so you're not surprised or worried, et cetera. So we had this whole conversation beforehand and I thought I was, you know, totally prefacing the issue and everything would be great. Mm. Um, and we're at lunch and we're eating hamburgers. And so we're eating hamburgers with our hands mm. and auntie's sitting across from us. And at some point in the conversation, my son interrupts and points and says, no fingers. And I was like, Oh my goodness. I was so embarrassed and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to respond. And my response essentially was like, Oh no, no, auntie's okay. Auntie is allowed to eat hamburgers with her hands. Just like you're allowed to eat hamburgers with her hands and totally skirted over what was actually the thing he was pointing out was that he was like making the connection at this moment that she had no fingers on one hand. Oh, okay. Like, I don't think he was saying like, you can't eat hamburgers with your hands I think he was he saw it and made the connection between the conversation that we had and noticing at that moment but decided to point it out in this very public way and then I just kind of did the like classic like moving on like let's not like discuss this in any way yeah um and and granted we went back and had a conversation later and I was like oh let's talk about this um but I think what it revealed to me is when you don't think actively about practicing mm-hmm. you're you get stuck and I think any normal person gets stuck right they're just like I don't know what to say yeah um so I think that gets back to your idea about like what do we do how do we have these conversations yeah. um so I think one you know good way to do it is to think about um the types of books that you have in your home and I know that was a big topic all of last summer where everyone was sending around you know, anti-racist books for your kids. Um, but that yeah. can be a really good way to easily, more easily broach the topic in a natural way. Um, or just finding books with diversity so that you can kind of point things out um, and discuss them naturally and practice having like just some natural discussions. Um, and even before you're reading the book with your kid to be like, okay, I'm going to read this book and here's what I might think about as I'm going through this book. Um, but to like give yourself some practice doing it in that way, um, a lot of conversations start around things that you're doing together. Um, another one that um, has come up that can be really great is oftentimes um, there are community organizations that put on plays that are specifically targeted for preschool audiences. Um, and depending on, on where you live, 
um, some of these plays have themes that are related to race in some way that can be good conversation starters. Um, and so I think there are ways that you can take um, things that you do with your kids to kind of start conversations and ha- and um, see what kind of questions they ask and be ready to, to respond to the questions. And I think part of it is also realizing, okay, you'll make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that means that you'll figure out, okay, maybe I, this is the way I would improve next time. Um, and so just kind of pushing yourself to do that, even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And how, so do you feel that, cause this is like your, like, this is your focus <laughs> in your work. And, you know, like you said, we're all human. We all in the moment can get tripped up. Things can come out of left field. Like, even if you're prepared to talk about one thing, like you said, a kid can t- bring up something totally different and then you don't know what to say. have have there been moments where you feel like I nailed that like that was exactly how I want like I I wanted to handle it and like just an example with your own kids or maybe with other kids when they've asked you questions about it that you can share where like it felt really good (laughs) that was was like a great interaction (laughs) I know that's probably a hard question to answer (laughs) I don't know if I can I can't, I honestly can't think of an example with regard to. Well, I guess it could be more so just about like your approach with your own children. having. Children, yeah, I think yeah. it's about just kind of having open conversations, following up on things that they say. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, actually one for me that was interesting. Uh, and I, and I think it, it points to sometimes your kids will notice things and And then how you respond to them could open up a conversation or could lead to not having a conversation at all. That could have been important. So one example that I remember now, that's an interesting one for me as well, was there was a time my son came home from preschool and and he mentioned, oh, we did. I was like, what did you do at school? And um, and he's one of those. And now in particular is one of those kids who gives one word answers. And he's like stuff. <laughs> it was good. Um, but yeah. in principle, he was a little bit more talkative and a little bit more open. And he was like, oh, we did something different today in class, mommy. And I was like, really, what did you do? And he's like, well, I don't know if I should tell you. And then I was <laughs> like, okay, now I really want to know. What did you do? Can you describe to me what you did? And he's like, we did an activity. I was like, well, what activity did you do? He's like, well, the teacher, she split us up she put us in different um, groups. And I was like, oh, what groups did she put you in? And he was like, oh, well, she put us in groups based on our skin color. So some of us got put in dark skin color groups and some of us got put in light skin color groups. Um, wow. and, and it was um, one of those situations- cool. That's really young. <laughs> there's like so many ways you could respond to this. Yeah. Um, but I- because of the research I do, I was like, oh, I know exactly what she's doing. <laughs> um, and she basically was taking um, the, the brown-eyed, blue-eyed exercise that Jane Elliott has done with kids and translating it um, in the classroom to, in this case, skin color. And she was using it as an opportunity to teach the kids sort of about what it means when, you know, you might differentiate based on skin color in a very real way. 
Um, and I think a lot of parents might have been upset in that particular type of situation. Um, but I, I saw it I, and was like, this is awesome. I can't, you know, that they're doing this and that they're having these conversations with these preschoolers. But what was so interesting to me was a that he he kind of picked up on this like I don't know if this is something I should tell you about yeah yeah that is um, but me the um kind of some of my follow up questions so I was like which group were you in because <laughs> which is interesting to me because it also speaks to the the environment here where there's a lot of very, and I think it is the case in a lot of places, but I think particularly here where there is a lot of gradation and variation. And so that he was kind of somewhere in the middle and I wasn't quite sure where he would fall. And then I was like, oh, well, what about this friend? Which group was this friend in? What about this friend? Um, and then I was like, well, well then, then what did you talk about after that? And he's like, oh, well, we talked about how, you know, that this this happened in the past and, and how, you know, some of the people in the other group, I wouldn't be allowed to play with them. And I wouldn't, we wouldn't be allowed to be in the same places. And I was like, well, how did that make you feel? Um, you know, and he's like, oh, I didn't like it. It wasn't, it wasn't good. Um, but it, you know, it's sort of being able to unpack these ideas with them, being yeah. able to connect it with how they're feeling. I mean, I think, you know, there's the worry that, you know, you put children through these exercises and they feel really, really bad. Um, and I think maybe that could happen, but I think it's like having them understand and try to see what the message is. And sometimes right. they take a little bit of help to be like, okay, I know like that means that like that wasn't good and I don't wanna do that to other people and to kind of help them see the gap that they may or may not be crossing in terms of, oh, this means I should be empathetic to other people right. who look different than me. Um, it's also a great example of how you reacted. Like you said, some parents might've been upset and that just would have been like a reflection of their own discomfort on that where their preschooler is still maybe figuring it out, how they feel about it. Like they don't have may like negative experiences prior to this to give them a reason to, you know, react the way the parents are going to obviously with years and years of life ahead of their kids. And like, and you just kept it on your son. Like you kept the focus on how he felt about that experience. And I think that's a really important takeaway for people who have kids or don't have kids is that it's so little about how you feel about what the kid is going through. And I can imagine, of course, as a parent, you're like, I just want to make sure you're happy and safe and perfect all the time. And like, you know, but you can't do that. And I am curious though, do, have you seen a lot of preschool teachers kind of like do testing like this, just like in the classroom during a school day? I, it, I didn't know. I mean, I, I only have one child. so I, I Okay. To... I'm just, I, I just like, that's so interesting. If it wasn't just like a regular, like preschool activity, you know, for a teacher to kind of, I don't know. It was cool though. It's, it's a, it's a really cool story and it's a cool thing to be aware of also. Um, yeah. And I think it depends on the school in terms of like yeah. how much autonomy the teachers have in terms of, of right. things to do with the kids. Yes. Um, but and the confidence in themselves to like manage that activity from start to finish as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, but I, you know, I agree with you, like how the parent reacts in that particular situation gives information mm -hmm. to the kid. Right. And so 
thank you. And so I guess for me, this, this was a, an example of like, oh, I felt like I reacted, you know, well, and, you know, we had a conversation and, try, and it, and it was a conversation of curiosity, like how, well, what did you do? Like, what did that mean to you? And is helping them kind of understand and unpack it. Um, and it was really, you know, it was a fascinating conversation. Um, yeah. So I'm glad I was that example. <laughs> yeah. I love that story. It was great. Um, do you feel like you've, a lot of people in your network or community have come to you for advice regarding these types of conversations with their children? Um, I think happening more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely have had, like, you know, conversations with individual parents or friends who are like, oh, my son or daughter is going through this and or said this and, mm-hmm. you know, how would I respond or what should I do? Um, I think certainly having more of those conversations now just in terms of broader audiences so giving more talks about okay what are some of the the lessons we can take away from the research right in terms of what we know kids understand and how to um unpack their understanding and help prevent kind of perpetuation of biases within our different institutions including schools um and i think there's been some interest too particularly in what you communities um, and trying to also understand how things might be slightly different here as well. Because I think there's still um, very particular type of biases here, um, but they are different than other places. Um, and so trying to understand how do we understand the contextual effects as well, right? So everyone's community is going to be slightly different in terms of the groups that are present and the types of um kind of inner group tensions that would be going on that may reflect the the particular community. Well, makes sense. Um, So what would you say before we wrap this up? I have a few questions I ask everyone, but I just wanted to know, you know, for people listening who don't have kids, are there resources or maybe some of your studies that you would point them to as like a great starting point or anything that you found to be really helpful either for yourself or referring to other people? I mean, I do agree that Embrace Race <laughs> in terms yeah. of their website and all the things that they have on there is are fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think one paper that I have that is kind of accessible, you know, it's hard because I think a lot of the research publications, there's like a certain amount of jargon that you have to get past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, that one paper that I have that's um, somewhat accessible is um, the paper that looks at kind of the impact of colorblindness. Um, versus yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that yeah. a little bit. If you can share like kind of what your what your goal was, what you were trying to look at, and then what you guys found, just kind of synthesize it, it would be great. I'd love to yeah. hear more about that. So this particular paper was trying to compare a, a colorblind approach to diversity where the, the emphasis is on, you know, we're all the same. We don't need, yeah. you know, don't need to worry, you know, race is, we don't need to pay attention to race versus uh, you know, we do need to value all of our different backgrounds and our racial backgrounds and they're important. So there, there are two kind of different approaches to how we might reduce stereotyping and prejudice. Um, and there's kind of mixed evidence for, for both in terms of, of what are the implications of, of adopting these approaches. Um, but we decided to look at it in a, in a, a school context um, and uh, expose children to storybooks that emphasized a, a colorblind approach 
or storybooks that emphasized a more value diversity approach. Um, so this is also one way you can think about um, having conversations with your kids is if you're finding books that have themes that really resonate with the messages you wanna be passing on, those can be also a really great way to, to instill some of these ideas. Yeah, um, yeah. And so we use the storybooks in that way. Um, but what we were interested in is, okay, well, you're, you're exposed to these ideas, how does that impact the extent to which you might recognize discrimination when it happens, when you when it's happening in your environment? Uh, and so we had children read the storybooks, and then in what was supposed to be an unrelated study, we exposed them to a series of, of stories um, where discrimination happened in some of them and discrimination didn't in others. Like it was one way it like clearly didn't happen, um, one where it was very, very explicit and clear. And then one that was kind of in between where you weren't really sure it was ambiguous. You could maybe say that it was discrimination or you could maybe attribute it to something else. Um, and what we found overall was that um, children who were exposed to the value versus uh, story they detected discrimination at um, kind of in line with what you expect. So when there was no discrimination, they said there was no discrimination. When there was clear discrimination, like 80 something or maybe more percent of them said, yes, that was discrimination. When it was ambiguous, they were right around the middle, around 50%. So, you know, they're detecting discrimination like you would expect. What happened with the ones who were exposed to that colorblind approach, we basically see everything's depressed. So that if there was super clear discrimination now, you know, I can't remember the exact results, but something like 60% or so were saying it was discrimination. So in a case where most people would say this is discrimination, just being exposed to this colorblindness idea made it less likely that they would say that was discrimination and something should be done. Um, so if you can think about it kind of in a application standpoint, if I'm at a school and my school is kind of taking more of this colorblind approach, that could be the lens through which I'm viewing all the interactions. And so I see discrimination happen on the playground. I'm less likely to call it discrimination or right, perceive right. it that Stand way. In. Yeah, I might be less likely to jump in or do anything about it. I might be less likely to report it to the teacher. Um, and so we also had a, another part to it where we actually asked the children after we went through this whole, you know, describe how you know severe that incident was, describe if it was discrimination. We then uh, had them, okay, can you re tell, uh, relay the stories back to us? Tell us what you remember about the, the incident with, you know, Sam and Davey or whoever the, the names were. And they then told us the stories back and we took those stories, exactly what they said. And we, we had teachers go through them and listen to them and then tell us, okay, in this particular situation, would you intervene and tell them, uh, you know, basically say something had to be done to help the, the child that, um, you know, in each, in each of them, there was some sort of incident. Right. And basically, again, in the colorblind condition, all of it was depressed where the teachers were less likely to intervene wow. um, even when discrimination was clearly happening. And it was done through this kind of mechanism of, it was because the, the kids perceived it differently. Then they talked about it differently. And specifically they were less likely to mention race as 
as part of what was going on. Right. And then the teachers saw it as less severe because of that. And so there was this communication chain that got totally changed based on how they started, like the messages that they were kind of, uh, that were coloring how they, they viewed everything. So to me, that's a, a, a big lesson of these types of, of approaches and what we're emphasizing in our schools or with our kids can trickle down to how they see events in their real world and the likelihood that they might stand up, for example, if they see discrimination happening. Yeah, so ultimately this colorblind approach is dangerous. Yeah, that was, that was the takeaway from the study. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, I mean, obviously there's so much more to it, but that's essentially, yeah, there's just a lot of danger in that kind of approach and excuse to not wanting to really reflect and like learn and grow from, you know, embracing race. <laughs> um well, thank you so much, Dr. Parker. This was amazing and so informative, and I'm really glad to have you on. I have three last questions I ask every guest. Um, the first one is, what mantra or words do you like to live by? I know you sent it to me ahead of time, and I tried to think about it. I was like, I have no idea. Uh, I think for me, just you know, living life by your passions mm-hmm. and letting your passions drive your, your life um, as much as possible. And I know that can be hard, but um, I do think that's important yeah. that you should be doing work and living your life driven by something you're excited about. Absolutely. That's really good advice. I think people often forget when we get all caught up in like surviving, <laughs> but you know, I feel like you can find really incredible ways too to live by your passion. So that's really good advice. Um, we all know it takes a village to raise kids. What do you most value in your community who helped you raise your son? Or is I helping you still to this day? Helping you still. Yeah. Um, I think kind of the, the flexibility and the, the ability to kind of just be there to support whenever needed. I think, um, you know, there, I know that I can call any number of people at any time if I'm in a rut or stuck, you know, and they would be like, sure, I'll, I'll help out. Uh, so I think, and, and that's a privilege as well, right? So a lot of, a lot of times you may or may not have that, you know, you may live someplace and have no close family or friends. Um, but so really finding uh, and being able to, to rely on other people, because I think it's really hard when, when you're trying to do everything yourself. So being comfortable also reaching out, um, and, um, you know, working with other people when you need help and asking, yeah, reaching out, like you said, that's so important. Um, and then lastly, what qualities do you most admire and hope to instill in your son or are already seeing kind of him, um, clearly have these characteristics in him already? I think one that's always important is, is empathy, um, and humility. I think he needs to work a little bit on the humility aspect. But, um, he is very, very empathetic. And I've seen that from the very beginning, but he is continued to cultivate that over time. And, and I think that's a valuable, um, Absolutely. valuable trait to have. And I think we'll work on the humility. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, amazing. Thank you again. I really appreciate your time and um, all the work that you've done in your career so far. Like it's clearly it's so important. And I think a lot of people will benefit from reading it who are listening. Like I said, look 
Dr. Parker up. All the information will be in the show notes, but if there's a specific place that you would like to, for people to discover or connect with you, um, please let us know. Sounds good. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Not A Mama Yet. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review an Apple Podcasts and maybe even share it with a friend. Check out the podcast notes for any links we may have mentioned during our conversation, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.